Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do great work, and you can give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today, including special guest Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll complete our conversation around uh, uh, immigration policy as well as law. We'll also visit with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. It is July the 6th, and on this day in 1957, Althea Gibson claimed the women's single title at Wimbledon and became the first African-American to win a championship at London's All-England Lawn Tennis and Croquet Club. Gibson was born on August the 25th, 1927 in Silver, South Carolina, and raised in Harlem, the section of New York City. She began playing tennis as a teenager and went on to win the National Black Women's Championship twice. At the time when tennis was largely segregated, four-time U.S. Nationals winner Alice Marble advocated on Gibson's behalf, and the 5'11 player uh, was invited to make her United States National Championships, known as the uh, U.S. Open now, debut in 1950. In the 1956, Gibson's tennis career took off, and she won the singles title at the French Open, the first African-American to do so, as well as the doubles title there. In July 1957, Gibson won Wimbledon, defeating Darlene Hard 6-3, 6-2. In 1975, Arthur Ashe became the first African-American man to win the uh, men's single title at Wimbledon as he defeated Jimmy Connors. In September 1957, she won the U.S. Open, and the Associated Press named her Female Athlete of the Year in 1957 and 58. During the 50s, Gibson won 56 singles and doubles titles, including 11 major titles. After winning Wimbledon and the U.S. Open again in 1958, she retired from amateur tennis. In 1960, she toured with the Harlem Globetrotters basketball team playing exhibition tennis matches before their games. In 1964, she joined the Ladies Professional Golf Association. Can you believe that? The first black woman to do so. The trailblazing athlete played pro golf until 1971, the same year in which he was voted into the National Lawn Tennis Association Hall of Fame. After serving as New Jersey's Commissioner of Athletics and from 75 to 85, she died at the age of 76 from respiratory failure on September the 28th, 2003 at a hospital in East Orange, New Jersey. The great Althea Gibson, great tennis player and also trailblazer as well as a golfer, professional golfer as well. Well, the Atlanta Federal Reserve announced on Friday that the second quarter of the 2022 saw a GDP of minus 2.1%. The GDP Now model estimate for the real GDP growth seasonally adjusted annual rate in the second quarter of uh, 2022 is minus 2.1% on July 1st, down from minus 1% on June 30th. After this morning's manufacturing ISBM report on business from the Institute for Supply Management and Construction report from the U.S. Census Bureau, the NowCast of second quarter real personal consumption expenditures growth in real estate and real gross private domestic in, uh, investment growth decreased from 1.7% and minus 13.2% respectively 
to 0.8% and minus 15.2% respectively. The GDP grew, uh, shrank by 1.6% in the first quarter of 2022. For the fr- record, recessions are typically marked by an economy shrinking in back-to-back quarters measured by gross domestic product. Well, guess what? That's what we have right now, and that means indicate that we currently are in a recession. <clears throat> Joe Biden insists that the market, uh, that our economy is strong, but it's hard to be strong if you're in a recession. Florida's 15-week abortion restriction that went into law July 1st, despite a judge ruling the law unconstitutional, was permitted to stay under a state appeal on Tuesday. Leon County Judge John Cooper briefly blocked the abortion restriction Tuesday morning, signing a restraining order, but an immediate appeal by the state allowed the restriction to stick for now. Florida's House uh, Bill 5 allows abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy only in the case of medical emergency or fatal fetal abnormality. The law also requires mandatory reporting to the state on abortions provided, along with the reasons for them. The case before Cooper was brought by an abortion provider who argued the restrictions violated the Florida Constitution, which permits abortion up to 24th week of pregnancy. Cooper ruled the law unconstitutional on the ground it violated the state's constitutional privacy law and does not meet the standard of Florida Supreme Court rulings that protect abortion rights in the state. Florida passed its, into its constitution an explicit right of privacy that is not contained in the U.S. Constitution, Cooper wrote. The uh, Florida Supreme Court has determined in its words, Florida privacy uh, provision is clearly implicated in the woman's decision on whether or not to continue her pregnancy. In other words, on the issue of abortion, the Florida Supreme Court has decided the woman has a privacy right under the state constitution to not have the right impacted upon the 24 weeks at least. Further, the Florida Supreme Court has found it if a legislative act imposes a significant restriction on a woman's right to seek an abortion, the act must further be compelling state interest through the least intrusive means. Here, the act effectively bans what if, uh, extremely limited exceptions pre-viability viable abortions previously permitted under Florida law. Cooper's ruling added the provider's witnesses were more credible than those of the state, and the state argue, argument was not legally sufficient to justify the statutory ban. The 15-week abortion restriction will remain in effect during legal proceedings on the appeal. So there you have it. The uh, privacy uh, part of the Constitution didn't interrupt this uh, 15-week now standard uh, maximum time for uh, having an abortion in Florida. Well, uh, this is really strange. I can't imagine how this can happen. You know, you may be aware that many Californians right now are fleeing to guess where? Not only Florida and other states like our Texas, but also to Mexico. Well, California Governor Gavin Newsom launched a campaign ad in Florida attacking Governor Ron DeSantis' initiatives and asking Floridians to join him in California. Freedom is under attack in your state, Newsom said. He's running for re-election as governor in California. I urge all of you living in Florida to join the fight or join us in California, he said, where we still believe in freedom. I'm not kidding. He really said that in this commercial. California some of the strictest COVID lockdowns in the country. Uh, Newsom has a statewide indoor mask mandate until March the 1st. Ron DeSantis press secretary, Christina Peshaw, uh, said Newsom is increasingly desperate to communicate with Californians who fled lib, left lib dystopia uh, for Florida. 
Californians and New Yorkers are reportedly leaving, leading the surge in 2022 as people move to Florida. Newsom continues to make out-of-context statements in the TV advertisements, which were aired uh, July the 4th. Earlier this year, DeSantis called San Francisco a dumpster fire when he talked about Democrats moving to Florida. They will not draw the connection between the leftist ideology and the destruction that's all around them. So if it's a problem, because I do think there is a class of voters who would come to Florida and they would continue to vote the same way, DeSantis said. Governor DeSantis is running for re-election as governor in the Sunshine State. The uh, DeSantis campaign sells mugs that say, I heart, uh, putting in a little heart, California wish my governor was Ron DeSantis. <laughs> the campaign told Fox News in June that Newsom's ad buy is a smear campaign. Governor Newsom might as well uh, light a pile of cash on fire, pass the popcorn for his desperate attempt to win back the California refugees who fled the hellhole he created in the state to come to Florida. Uh, the f- people of Florida pay no mind to the pathetic smear campaigns from Democrats and their allies in corporate media. We're too busy enjoying our freedom. Governor Ron DeSantis has created in the Sunshine State, the uh, spokesperson added. No kidding. Can you believe that? Gavin Newsom says, come to our free state of California. Anything but free. My goodness. Kinney County, Texas, has declared the existence of an invasion at the U.S.-Mexico border. The county's uh, declaration calls for uh, Texas Governor Greg Abbott, a Republican, to acknowledge the existence of an invasion on our border with Mexico. Five other counties uh, spoke in support of uh, Kinney County's declaration. Officials from Kenny and other five other counties met on Tuesday to discuss their concerns regarding the increasing number of migrants crossing the border from Mexico into Texas. A press release from Kenny County Judge Tuli Sheehan details the increase in human smuggling in the county, stating that in June, Kenny County law enforcement has prevented over 67 smuggling attempts over along our roadways this past weekend, including included the unfortunate deaths of three illegal aliens who were involved with human smuggling in Kinney County. Kinney County, Brackettsville, has been forced to militarize our school campus with vehicle barriers to prevent high-speed chases from entering our campus and injuring children. As a Texan, this is not acceptable. We'll no longer allow the sovereignty of Texas to be invaded by those unwilling to obey our laws, Shan continued. This is why today, July 5th, 2022, Kinney County, joined by several other counties on the Texas border, are declaring the existence of an invasion as used in Article 4, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution and in Article 4, Section 7 of the Texas Constitution. We are taking these steps in hopes of encouraging our governor to acknowledge the existence of an invasion on our border with Mexico, taking the necessary actions to preserve and protect the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Texas. God bless him. This is actually, it is in the Constitution that the states have the right to protect their own borders. And that's what they did until the Department of Homeland Security was created. Well, now these counties are saying, you know, no mas, we can't take this anymore. And if uh, Mayoris, uh, Alejandro Mayorkas is not going to do his job, is not going to close the borders, then we've got to take our own action, hopefully with the uh, support of our governor. And that's exactly what they're doing. Several counties are getting together. Hopefully this will embarrass the president of the United States and Alejandro Mayorkas into doing their jobs and protecting the border. 
They're currently not doing it, and uh, we're having all kinds of problems, including criminals and potential terrorists coming across our border. Hundreds of thousands of people. There weren't even, I think the number is close to a half a million people that have not been detained crossing the border. At least uh, many of the people are been, uh, have been uh, registered for their quote-unquote trial. And finally, the 45th president's overall endorsement, that would be Donald Trump, sits at uh, 146 and 10 thus far. Trump-backed candidates are undefeated in primary races in 22 states. Uh, and, for example, the, the uh, people that Trump endorsed running for Senate are J.D. Vance, of course. That was a tough race. And he was doing poorly before uh, the endorsement. Senator Mike Crapo from Indiana, uh, from Idaho, rather. Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky. Ted Budd. Republican of North Carolina, uh, uh, of course, Dr. Oz in the Pennsylvania, Senator John Boozman from Arizona, Herschel Walker, Republican nominee for Senate in Georgia, Chuck Grassley in Indiana, uh, former Nav- uh, Nevada Attorney General Adam Laxalt is a Republican nominee for U.S. Senate in Nevada, John Hoven from uh, North Dakota, uh, Senator Tim Scott, Republican nominee from South Carolina, Katie Britt from uh, U.S. Senate in Alabama, and Senator Mike Lee, Republican nominee for U.S. Senate in uh, Utah. These candidates all won their primaries, and of course that's with the endorsement of President uh, Donald Trump. That doesn't even bring up the governors and other shots, uh, slots, for example, U.S. representatives as well. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harton, the host of the Bob Harton Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Thank you. 
Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. Everyone, every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. Want to find out more? Visit CollierSeniorCenter.org. That's CollierSeniorCenter.org. Or call the Collier Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252-4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform, and you can find out more and download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. Coming up, I'm going to visit with Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. He's a constitutional scholar, an author, and he's also the chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., and devoted to free markets, private property, securing individual liberty, and limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Cato.org. Thank you, Bob. So uh, we'll get finish up our conversation about uh, immigration policy and law. And uh, haven't the courts also said the feds can't use funding to force state cooperation? Yeah, um, we talked last week, you know, about the Supreme Court has required a logical connection between any federal funding that's withheld and the goal of the law that the feds want to have enforced so that, you know, the court can, uh, if you have federal highway funds, you can withhold those as a means of enforcing a, say, a national speed limit because there's a link between the highway and funding and highway safety, but if you were to threaten to withhold highway funds to prevent <clears throat> immigration sanctuary cities, that there's not enough linkage there. Yeah. So the, the feds may not deny funding to states in a manner that compels cooperation. That's another rule that the feds have adopted. And that's, of course, how Obama tried to force the states to expand Medicaid. He said he was going to withhold all funding if a state said no, Medicaid funding. And the Supreme Court reminded Obama that these kinds of coercive conditions imposed on the receipt of federal funds is not compatible with federalism, and therefore it's unconstitutional. So the, the court said, look, we're, we're a nation of laws. We have sovereignty split <clears throat> between the feds and the states. And uh, while collaboration isn't constitutionally mandated, officials in these sanctuary cities uh, cannot obstruct federal enforcement. But the difficulty, of course, 
is how do you distinguish a refusal to cooperate from active obstruction? And that's been the legal uh, quandary over the years. Yeah, it's kind of interesting that uh, the state of Texas, a couple of counties in Texas are saying uh, you're not enforcing the border laws right now. I'm talking about immigration laws, Alejandro Mayorkas and the president. So they're saying there's an invasion on our southern border, and we want to prevent that from happening. And so they're calling on the governor to uh, to uh, to do something about it. And I'm just wondering, how does that fit into the, the overall situation? Well, Article 4 says that the federal government have a responsibility to protect us from invasions. So, of course, the first hurdle would be the definition of the term invasion and whether or not there is, in fact, an invasion which conjures up images of armed combat. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if, it, if that's the narrow definition of invasion, then I think uh, it, it wouldn't uh, characterize what's going on at the border. But if you interpret the word invasion broadly, then the federal government does have a responsibility. The next question, of course, would be, under Article 4, what's the remedy if the federal government doesn't fulfill uh, that responsibility? And there's some question there as to whether the Constitution is self-executing or whether or not there has to be some statutory uh, remedy that's been passed. And if there is, I don't know of one. Yeah. If there's no statutory remedy, then can the states go to court and try to enforce that? And that would be a question of standing. The state would have to show that it's been injured by this uh, so-called uh, invasion. So, you know, there's some legal hurdles, but it's an interesting concept. It certainly is, and I think it's going to show up in front of the Supreme Court sometime soon. So uh, what changes would you make to our immigration system? Well, I think what we need is a system that's focused on work-related criteria. You know, the U.S. has always issued temporary work visas. for They usually go for one to three years. But work has low priority in the U.S. immigration uh, system each year, we admit about a million legal immigrants, mm-hmm. and about a half million come in illegally. And the annual number of employment-related visas is, if you can believe it, eighty-six thousand. Wow! So you know it's nearly impossible for foreigners to work in the U.S. unless either they're asylum seekers, they have close relatives here, they marry a U.S. citizen, or they. They win the diversity lottery, which is, you know, only about 50,000 people a year, and that's set up by country. So we need a lot more workers than that. A sensible strategy would be to encourage both unskilled workers and those particularly with advanced degrees. So we need to expand the work visas. We need more judges and immigration courts to handle uh, these folks coming in at the border. We need more and better detention facilities. We need to attack the source of the problem, which is in Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And as we've talked before, I think drug legalization would be the best bet there. And finally, we need to facilitate these asylum applications, not from the border, but from the source country, the way we do with refugees. Um, So that's a five-part program that I think we go a long way, but we're not likely to get there anyway soon. None. No time soon, no. So didn't amnesty fail during the Reagan era? Yeah, you know, in a, back in the 80s, Reagan granted amnesty to over 3 million immigrants, mostly from Mexico. Um, and, and yet we continue to have 
illegal immigration. So that certainly suggested the failure of an amnesty program. Some people argue, however, that the Reagan amnesty and and some other smaller amnesties over the years were just a recognition that the immigration system wasn't working. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, the amnesty was an, an attempt to catch up with bad law and to remedy the effects of bad law. But the problem was the bad law itself. And so if you really wanted to fix it, you couldn't have you couldn't fix it by attacking symptoms. You had to fix it at the root uh, and revise uh, the law. So, unfortunately, none of these amnesties were accompanied by legal fixes uh, to the system. Well, attacking symptoms seems to be a common theme in, in making law here in the United States, unfortunately. Uh, can you comment on the Trump's remain in Mexico policy? Yeah, this is a case that just came up before the court. Yeah. Uh, Biden versus Texas, and the issue there is whether uh, Biden can uh, could abandon this remain in Mexico policy. That policy was applicable to asylum seekers who had cases pending. Uh, the lower court said Biden didn't uh, provide an adequate reason and didn't jump through the necessary procedural hoops. Uh, the court sided with the administration. Roberts joined, uh, and Roberts and Kavanaugh joined the uh, liberals and said that Biden can end this uh, this remain in Mexico policy. The technical name is Migration Protection Protocols. Uh, the, the Immigration and Nationality Act says that government may release immigrants on, po- on parole or detain them or return them to a contiguous territory. Now, since Detention facilities were inadequate. The lower courts had said, well, look, you got to send them back to Mexico. But the Supreme Court said, look, the word may means that the Department of Homeland Security has ample discretion, even if the detention facilities are not workable. So this Remain in Mexico series uh, policy is now uh, going to be abandoned. Uh, So the real problem we still have is this Title 42 emergency power to reject asylum uh, seekers. That remains in effect as of this past uh, May. A federal judge preliminarily enjoined Biden from abandoning that procedure, which would effectively reopen the borders to asylum uh, seekers. We had 24 states that complained about the cost of illegal immigration and the spread of of COVID, the court agreed with them. I think the Democrats actually were secretly p- pleased with that decision because that's the only way they're keeping this uh, so-called invasion uh, away from the borders because Title 42 uh, gives them the power to, the emergency power to reject asylum seekers. So interesting. Bob Levy, again, chairman of the Cato Institute, I encourage you to visit Cato.org, C-A-T-O.org. Bob, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Andrew Joppa. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer with chronic pain and discomfort? After back surgery, I had painful tendons and muscles and difficulty standing upright. 
On a referral, I visited Dr. Alec at I Am Designed to Heal, Naples' only vitality and longevity practice where acupuncture, medical massage, energy healing, and integrative holistic medicine are harmonized to create a -a one-of-a-kind restorative experience. After only two visits, my pain began to dissipate and I could stand and walk more upright. It was amazing. I plan to continue my treatments to enhance my sense of well-being. Don't suffer needlessly with discomfort and pain. Improve your quality of life. See for yourself and make an appointment by visiting the website IamDesignedToHeal.com. That's IamDesignedToHeal.com or you can call or text Dr. Alec at 239-322-3817. That's 322-3817. Visit IamDesignedToHeal.com for an amazing, one-of-a-kind, restorative experience. You have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. Among other things, creating policies and programs to get able-bodied folks off of welfare and back to work. And you can find out more by visiting the website, thefga.org. We have with us Andrew Joppa, professor and author of a a book that's off-topic for today's discussion, but really an outstanding read. It's called Josefa Savaz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Thank you, Bob. The sales of my book have been increasing. I think that's to a large extent because of your comments. Well, thank you you so much, Andy. Again, Josefa Savaz, it really is an interesting read. So, Andy, typically we start off with good news because we've got so much bad news going on. Uh, Any good news for us? Well, there are some pieces of good news, and I I think I could position them as being uh, breaks in the armor of the left, the, the barriers put up by the left. Uh, recently, Bette Midler was attacked by most of the people in the progressive left because she defended the word women. Uh, so that was an outrage uh, normally that would be <laughs> not possible by anyone on the left. But Bette Midler, a strong leftist, no doubt. Uh, but she, in fact, actively came out in support of the word women. Uh, it's hard to imagine that that would be a significant piece of good news. But uh, in many ways, Bob, it is. Uh, another piece of, of marginal good news is the uh, the circumstance of Brittany Griner, who has been arrested and held uh, in Russia for, I guess, about six months now uh, on a charge of traveling uh, with uh, vape cigarettes, uh, some of it being cannabis. Now, why she could do something as stupid as that, that's another question entirely. <laughs> but she has finally identified and clearly recognized the difference between a country like Russia and a country like the United States. Why point that out? I point that out because Greiner has been a strong activist against the United States, against our 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 our, uh, our, pl- our pledge of allegiance, against our Star Spangled Banner. So she's come out actively, but I think she's beginning to see 
the difference between a great country like the United States uh, and a two-bit totalitarian state like Russia, Bob. Uh, it's so it's such an interesting point of view. I'd be interested to hear her comments once she does return, if and when she returns. Uh, I just another good piece of news is that, that Gavin Newsom is running commercials <laughs> in Florida, <laughs> saying leave the the uh, awful state of Florida for uh, the free California. <laughs> I can't, can't he can't make this stuff up. As best I can tell, uh, America is contained within two things: the uh, the geographic state of Florida and the human person of Donald Trump. Because almost everything that happens from the left deals either with Florida or with Trump. So I think they clearly understand that a, a strong pro-American president, again like Trump, would totally uh, uh, dismantle their 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 efforts. And again, I think DeSantis in Florida is is showing America, the rest of America. What a good state really looks like. Yeah, well, I'll add, uh, just pile on, our uh, Surgeon General, Joseph Lopato, Dr. Joseph Lopato, is a rock star, in my opinion. He's standing up to the CDC and all these different uh, agencies uh, that uh, have been weaponized, in my opinion, and uh, certainly keeping Florida free in that way as well, working with the governor, I think is just really incredible. For example, uh, not endorsing the uh, shots, the vaccines, the jabs for kids uh, between the ages under five, uh, and just saying we're, we're not recommending it, you can do it, they're going to be available, but we're not going to facilitate the process. I appreciate that a lot. Well, and also Publix is uh, not going to be giving any shots to anyone under the age of five. So I think that's a strong statement by a, basically a Florida corporation that uh, understands the absurdity of all that. Lovato is a positioning. I, I really admire the man in terms of what you've already said, but his style is, is wonderful. It's calm. It's articulate. It's thorough. So uh, this, this is a fine man who in the future, uh, I don't know if it's on his, on his plate, but I could see this man uh, perhaps even becoming the governor of Florida at some point. And you know what? I, I, that thought has crossed my mind as well. So, I mean, a lot of what we're seeing right now is a legacy of Donald Trump through the Supreme Court. What are your thoughts? Well, it's been pointed out for both his allies and those that are his detractors that uh, the legacy of Donald Trump will primarily be one of the Supreme Court. And I think that is it's undeniable as long as, as court packing doesn't take place. Now, if that takes place, then all bets are off. But right now and for the future, the next 20 years, 25 years, perhaps, uh, we're going to see Trump will be, in fact, the major uh, statesman uh, by uh, by his appointments uh, that is controlling the future of America. And I think that's good news, Bob. Uh, before I get there, let me just mention another story which has uh, bothered me. I, I am a student of the Holocaust. I have pioneered the course at my college on the Holocaust. I've given many seminars on it. There's one figure I've always been aware of, and this is a, uh, a, a fellow, I'm using the word loosely fellow, uh, Stephen Bandera in Ukraine during World War II. Uh, Bandera headed a nationalist Nazi party in Ukraine uh, mm. that is responsible for killing perhaps as many as 800,000 Jews in Ukraine and perhaps another 100,000 in Poland. Mm. Stephen Bandera is not a good guy. He is a, a, a Nazi, he promoted Nazism, and he promoted a vicious anti-Semitism. Now, why bring that up? The ambassador to Germany, uh, uh, Andre Melnik, uh, has recently called him a, a freedom fighter for Ukraine. He, has, he praised him uh, to the heavens, Bob, in terms of, of who he was. I, and for those people that have said and uh, there should be concern about the um, 
the, the deep well of Nazism that is retained in Ukraine, uh, I think that we can see perhaps that showing its ugly head uh, with, the com- with the comments of Melnik. Uh, of course, at this point, Bob, in uh, the war between Ukraine and Russia, it has almost been impossible to offer any negative comments about Ukraine, even if you're generally supportive of Ukraine. Right. If you offer any negative pertaining to Ukraine, uh, social media and much of the media is going to shut you down, Bob. And I think that is a uh, that's an ash- a shame. I think Ukraine is fighting a, perhaps a, a valiant war, but I think it's a war at this point that is doing very little more than destroying the Ukrainian people and its infrastructure. Well, I would agree with that. And, uh, you know, it's not a matter of good, uh, white hats and black hats because sometimes you can have <laughs> bad, evil people on both sides. So we've got to have to be aware of that. Uh, how old is Bandera? Ah, uh, God, I, I don't even know if he's still alive at this point. I, I see. I, I okay. Don't know that. I, 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 can, I construed your words to mean that he was still in a leadership position. So that's, a, that's very yeah, interesting indeed. But, but this, this is a man that, uh, as I was uh, deeply involved with the study of the, uh, of the Holocaust, this was a name that was front and center in terms of his actions, not only against the Jews, but all those that were disfavored by the Nazi regime in Berlin. Uh, so this is a man that his credentials are only on the negative side uh, of the human ledger. Um, for anyone to praise him uh, is, is certainly an indication of something amiss, something wrong uh, in the in the government of Ukraine today, Bob. Uh, absolutely. Andy, you want to take a little break? Can you stick around? I will be here, Bob. All right. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. School Choice is a growing movement, one that is already lifting thousands of kids across America and is now supported by three out of four voters. The Optima Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit, was founded to support the establishment and expansion of superior schools of choice. Optima's goal is the successful launch of Hillsdale College, classical academies, and other schools of excellence serving kindergarten through 12th grade. The mission is to train the minds and improve the hearts of young people through content-rich classical education in the liberal arts and sciences with instruction in the principles of moral character and civic virtue. A terrific product of the process, Naples Classical Academy opened this fall in a classical virtual school. Optima Classical Academy will open in 2022. Find out more by visiting OptimaEd.org. 
help children in Florida optimize their education opportunities, visit www.optimaed.org. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. You can find out more and get tickets now. You can go to the website, gulfshoreplayhouse.org. We continue the conversation with Andrew Jopp, a professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to be with you, Bob. So, Andy, again, uh, just uh, positioning the Supreme Court as really uh, continuing Trump's legacy. Uh, what are your thoughts right now? Well, they're doing a sensational job. I, uh, it's hard to imagine exactly what's happened here. This is uh, the court, primarily the court, uh, that rejected taking up the Texas suit after the uh, 2020 elections. Uh, uh, you know, that was uh, to me, I, I saw no logic in it. They, all they had to do was take it up and hear it. And they refused to do that. Now, in the last couple of months, we have seen this court, uh, for some reason, it's hard to define why, uh, has certainly gotten, uh, gotten its, uh, it's found its courage, it's found its legality, it's found its constitution. Yeah. And they're doing a sensational job right now. Uh, so this is this to be applauded. I hope it continues. And I hope uh I hope that the Biden administration does not try to run roughshod over it. We are already seeing moves towards a New York state trying to work around the, uh, the right to carry that the Supreme Court essentially authorized. We're, we're also seeing the, uh, the EPA trying to work around the, uh, the West, Virginia, uh, West Virginia versus the EPA ruling. So I think we're going to see um, a lot of uh, these, these court's rulings, which are certainly uh, appropriate and certainly constitutional and necessary, uh, I think we're going to see a lot of, of pushback from both branches, the other branches uh, of the federal government, both the executive and the legislature. So we'll see how that plays out. And uh, again, as they've always said about the Supreme Court, it has no army. So how, how will it enforce its, its, uh, its positions? Uh, so I think we're going to perhaps run into a significant constitutional conflict uh, as it pertains to these recent rulings, Bob. But nevertheless, the rulings are so significant, especially the EPA, well, the, the Second Amendment as well. But uh, both rulings are so significant, especially the uh, EPA ruling uh, applies to all alphabet agencies in the, in, the, uh, in the United States government. So these people are unelected officials, and they're in many cases they're turning they're becoming politicized and unfortunately like the epa this is going to curtail that to a large extent and it will be challenged in court and now that we have this the first decision uh the other decisions will be more likely well i think by far the more important decision for america per se is the uh, west virginia versus the epa that is uh, certainly the abortion decision for dobbs was critical the uh, the right to carry decision was was important but as far as it being almost classified as existential, in my opinion, mm -hmm. the, the ruling in West Virginia uh, versus EPA was an existential decision in favor of America. Why do I say that? Because I believe that if the administrative state, if the bureaucracy had been allowed to continue on their unrestricted path, legislating and ruling at the, uh, at the, at the bureaucratic level, 
that I don't think America could have survived that, Bob. So uh, I think this is a, a the critical decision. Perhaps in many ways, I, I don't want to get overboard on this, but I think it may be the most critical decision ever made by the by the Supreme Court, Bob. Yeah, it is so interesting. Well, I think there's been some other significant ones, but this one's way up there because, again, it's it, it has the application is so broad that it's not going to apply just to the EPA, but it's going to provide, uh, it's going to uh, imply to all alphabet agencies. And you can just think about what's happening with the SEC, how that's being politicized, uh, the Fed. I mean, there's so many different organizations that are that are uh, that are trying to are taking the reins and getting uh, kind of weaponized for the Democrat Party. I think that's going to at least slow that process down. Well, before that ruling, we probably had not three branches of government. We probably had 200 branches of government yep. because each of these bureaucracies uh, was given almost the unlimited right to uh, to construct the, the interpretation and application of laws that were written by uh, by the legislature. Uh, I think the legislature with intent passed these uh, actions along to the to, to the bureaucracy with a, uh, a free ability uh, to really implement them however they wanted. Uh, so this is this is a critical decision for America. It should have dramatic impact on the on, on the nature of this nation. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to talk a little bit, though, Bob, about some of the issues that may not be front and center for the average listeners awareness. So, and maybe I'm wrong, but uh, let me just talk about a few things okay. that, uh, that I think should be uh, part of the uh, the average American's awareness of the Supreme Court. Now, my background is I. I had made presentations on stare decisis against stare decisis. I made one at the Hilton back in 2012 with, with Bob Levy being the, the other side of the argument. And uh, I, was the, I am director of the Council for Constitutional Principles, and I was a, uh, a, a significant contributing member of the Article 5 Convention. I only bring that up to mention that I've had a, a deep investment of time uh, in the issues surrounding the Supreme Court. Uh, so let me just take a moment to talk about, first of all, something that uh, a judicial review. Now, most Americans have heard the phrase, but they, uh, they're they not really totally familiar with it. Let me just sort of compress it into a statement. Uh, simply, judicial review is that the Supreme Court is the final arbiter of the Constitution. Now, it's somewhat more than that, but I think that's the best way to understand that. That was established by uh, by John Marshall uh, back in some of his rulings in the uh, in the early decades of the 19th century. L let me just read one of them to give the the audience a flavor of exactly what the father of judicial review said about this entire process. He said that the intention of the instrument, the Constitution, or one of its amendments, must prevail. That this intention must be collected from its words that it's words to be understood in that sense in which they are generally used by those for whom the instrument was intended, that its provisions are neither to be restricted into insignificance nor extended to objects not comprehended in them nor contemplated by its framers. Essentially, to compress those, those thoughts, John Marshall, the author of Judicial Review, said that the, 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 the document itself and its intentions must be the guiding principle uh, for the process of judicial review. Hmm. I am not necessarily a, a big um, proponent of judicial review as it is currently used. On the other hand, I, I don't have another answer for who is going to be the final arbiter of the uh, of decisions affecting, uh, affecting America through the Constitution. And I, I must concede that it, judicial review 
is the necessary final arbiter, Bob. Yeah, absolutely. It was not surprising today that we saw that a, a Breitbart.com has featured a, a, a law professor from Georgetown University that says that our Constitution is out of date and we should scuttle it and, and come up with something better. <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, they've been, by the way, they've been doing this for years. If we look at the issue, for example, of something called landmark decisions, a landmark decision is basically defined as any decision by the Supreme Court that changes an existing law uh -huh. okay, in some dramatic or, or lesser way, but it changes an existing law. The 20 years following the uh, creation of the Constitution, there were three landmark decisions in those 20 years. Those people that best understood the Constitution and its intent only came up with three basic landmark decisions. Let's look at the period 1970 to 1990. 173 landmark decisions. Wow. 173 decisions that changed uh, existing law. Uh, it's a little uh, it's kept secret uh, among lawyers that the Supreme Court is in the active business of amending the Constitution through these landmark decisions. So uh, this is a process that uh, I'm optimistic this particular court will uh, will uh, uh, handle in a more effective manner. Uh, I think we, we can see that happening. Uh, but these landmark decisions have to be understood as altering existing law and in many ways rewriting the Constitution. All right, and that is a very sobering concept, Andy. Hey, we're going to take a little break. Can you stick around? I certainly can. All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate courtyard garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean dining room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples.
Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Always good to be with you, Bob. So there are a couple of concepts that uh, I think maybe you could help us uh, better understand and uh, position in with it regard to the Supreme Court. Is One is judicial review and judicial restraint. Maybe you could uh, elaborate on that. Well, the, the review is the uh, Supreme Court being the final arbiter of, of, the, uh, of the Constitution. Uh, as we talk about that, we have to talk about two other issues, uh, judicial restraint and judicial activism. Uh, look, let me just mention for your audience a, a, a good way to understand how some previous courts have abused the Constitution by using the Constitution. Now, what I mean by that is they'll take words in the Constitution and extend them into applications that were then never intended. Here's the best example, I think, to understand that. Uh, in, in the Constitution, it talks about promoting the general welfare. Now, pieces of legislation have been written and approved by the Supreme Court on the basis of their having improved and promoted the general welfare. Now, where did the general welfare clause really fall in? Uh, it was a clause that was inserted by Madison uh, which basically said, no matter the powers of the federal government, if it does not promote the general welfare, it is not a legal uh, rendering by the by the legislature or by the Supreme Court itself. Hmm. In other words, the general welfare clause was a restriction on government power, not an enhancement of government power. And that was very clear in the uh, in the Constitution and in the the ratifying debates. So, but it's been misused to become an additional power for government. We'll see that consistently through the actions of prior Supreme Courts. They'll take any words they can find in the Constitution or perhaps in, in prior positions taken during case law uh, and essentially warp them into whatever they want them to be. And speaking of case law, Bob, there are 250,000 pages of case law. It is almost impossible that a judge could not find some reason in case law to validate any view that they want to have if they're trying to move outside the Constitution. So, I mean, those are just uh, scattered pieces of information, but I think they illustrate the, uh, the problem. If we're going to talk specifically about it, if we talk about the issue of judicial restraint, judicial restraint is the... Uh, it, it is a position that says the court should exercise deference towards the legislative body as it pertains to the laws that they've created. Mm -hmm. It doesn't say you ignore unconstitutionality, but it says it must be an extreme example of a violation of the Constitution, and there should be consistent restraint exercised in declaring those actions unconstitutional. If there was one comment against the originalist court, it would be that one. And it's not one I agree with, Bob, mm -hmm. but it's that they have failed to exercise judicial restraint. They have failed to recognize the importance of, of giving deference uh, to prior decisions made, not only in the legislative body, but in the court itself. The other issue that we have to talk about is judicial activism. Now, this is the one that is clearly outside of the purpose of the Constitution, and I would add the purpose of the Supreme Court. 
all you have to do is read their oath of office to know this is not legal, not appropriate, not something that any Supreme Court justice should do. Activism really means that they're going to uh, put in their own views on something or they're going to put into uh, the, the law, they're going to base this on, on impact, not on the intent of the Constitution itself. So the, the battles we're going to see are, are primarily ones of, of judicial restraint versus judicial activism. Uh, and, and so if we look at the courts, and from, if I was to talk to a, an alien coming in from Mars, I would say to understand the court, understand judicial review, judicial restraint, and judicial activism. Those three things must be clearly understood to understand the court and its history. Yeah, so well said, Andy. You know, I think a, a good application of that is just take a look at the uh, makeup of the Supreme Court right now. We have Katanji Brown coming aboard as a new uh, associate justice of the Supreme Court. So now we have three, I'm going to call them judicial activists on the Supreme Court, and that would include Kagan and Sotomayor, as well as uh, Katanji Brown. And then four, uh, or I should say uh, five, I guess, uh, more than that. Uh, Roberts might sneak in there. Yeah, Roberts might sneak in there. But <laughs> certainly we have some judges who are, I'm going to call them originalists, who are want to uh, uh, retrain, retain the meaning of the Constitution as it was designed by the founders. Well, I, I don't think we can ask for anything more from a judge than that particular statement, Bob. Uh, when I hear the judge referred to as uh, being liberal or conservative, that, that really bothers me because typically we're talking about liberal or leftist versus originalists, those people that want the court, the Constitution to uh, to speak for itself and to be the uh, the uh, uh, controlling document for America. So when I hear these people, these judges like Scalia in the past, referred to as conservatives and not as people who wanted to defend uh, the Constitution itself, that, that tends to bother me because yeah. it gives the wrong impression to the general public, Bob. So interesting. Andrew Joppa, again, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Take a look at Josephus of Oz. Very interesting read. Uh, again, Andy, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. I, I just reread it myself. It's a fabulous book, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Andy. Well, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did and learned a lot. Uh, on tomorrow, we're going to visit with Keith Law, co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance. We're going to visit with Dr. George Markovich, an orthopedic surgeon. Uh, Seton Motley is the founder and publisher of Less Government. And Bill Barnett, the former mayor of Naples, will be joining us as well, giving a little flavor of what's happening here locally. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. Also, if you enjoy the show, please tell your friends and uh, introduce them to the website or to the podcast that uh, you're listening to. Uh, we could uh, certainly support our advertisers that way who make this show uh, possible. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.